sermons through the month of January on the stories that Jesus told. And then we're going to make a switch in February. But right now, we're still on these stories. And this morning, I want you to consider an example that I think is really worth our thinking about. It was 1995. One year after a three-win and seven-loss record with one tie. That's not a good record for college football. That gets you fired. And I know that he had significant problems later in his career uh, when he made a switch. But at that time, in 1995, Gary Barnett guided the Northwestern Wildcats to a stunning 10-2 record. They even got to go to, they, they won the Big Ten Championship that year, which, I mean, that includes Big Ten's teams like Ohio State, Michigan, Little Northwestern won the Big Ten that year. <coughs> First time in 59 years. And they actually got to go to the Rose Bowl out in California. Following that rags to riches season uh, that led them to the Rose Bowl, their first in decades. Uh, in fact, at one point, Northwestern had lost 34 games in a row, covering three seasons. Northwestern University Wildcats met with Coach Barnett for the opening of spring training. And as the players found their seats, Barnett announced that he was going to hand out awards that many of the Wildcats had won during that 1995 season. Some of the players exchanged glances and because Barnett normally didn't dwell on the past. But as the coach continued to call the players forward and handed them their placards proclaiming their achievements, they were cheered by their teammates. One of the coaches actually got up and gave Barnett a placard representing his 17 National Coach of the Year awards. Then, as the applause subsided, Barnett walked over to a trash can that was marked 1995. He took an admiring glance at his placard, and then he dumped it in the can. In the silence that followed, one by one, the team stars dumped their placards on top of Barnett's. Gary Barnett shouted a message that day without uttering a single word. What you did in 1995 was terrific. But look at the calendar. It's 1996. Let me ask you a question. What does or what might a fresh start have to offer you? What from this past year do you feel that you must hold on to? And what should you place in a trash can that's marked 2021? I've chosen to use as my text for this morning the 13th chapter of Luke. It's an interesting chapter in that Jesus teaches several uh, he uses several illustrations, both from current events as well as a few parables, stories, 
And in this, He not only shames His enemies when they question His healing on the Sabbath, but the chapter closes as He laments over Jerusalem. Now the context, the chapter begins with a call to repentance. So let's look at verses 1-5. to There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The report of a tragedy in Jerusalem thought by Jesus here is to be due to the special sinfulness of those who had suffered it leads Jesus to affirm that all of His hearers are equally in danger of divine judgment. And so He quotes a further example in which the same point is repeated. There are people that a tower fell on. Do you think they're worse? And you see, the logical logical conclusion of His argument is that if God does punish sinners in this way, then they better repent. Because all men are sinners. You see, the question is not, why did these people die? And we're facing that all the time right now, aren't we? I heard somebody, or I shouldn't say heard, I read somebody just recently, a friend of mine, saying, I don't understand. Why, and and a couple names were named, why they had to die from the disease, whereas others were living. The question isn't, why do these people die? But the question really is, why do we have a right to live? Not a single person here today is sinless. So we all better get prepared. And of course, you realize, don't you, that it's easier to talk about other people's deaths than it is to face our own possible death. The American publishing tycoon, you know the name, William Randolph Hearst, uh, his daughter was the infamous Patty Hearst in, in all of the debacle that happened out in California decades ago now. He wouldn't permit anyone to mention death in his presence. Yet he died. In fact, it's reported that someone was asked what the death rate was in his city and he replied, one apiece. And then he added, people are dying who have never died before. Now think about that. The fact is, is that every single one of us sitting here this morning and everyone joining online, every one of us is going to die. And the lesson of the parable that Jesus is about to tell is a little bit different from that of the introduction. The introduction speaks merely of the need for universal repentance. But the parable is going to bring the net in a little bit 
And it's going to indicate that mercy is available for those who repent in time. Now some have noted how the parable has certain affinities with the story of the cursing of the fig tree found in Matthew and Mark. But Luke omitted that story, but he has this one. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This first story, this first parable, is about figs. It's a story about a man who comes seeking fruit. Just as that other story about Jesus in Matthew 21, he was going to the fig tree seeking fruit. In fact, there were said that we're told that in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Apparently he hadn't eaten breakfast before leaving. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. As Matthew tells us about the encounter of Jesus with that fig tree, there is no separation of Jesus' harsh words about the tree in terms of time. May no fruit ever come from you again, he said. Why? Why would he say that? Well, because the fig tree would bear fruit before it would bear leaves. And the early spring, which would have been Passover time, which is where Matthew 21 is, those early figs would have been there. Now, they weren't the best figs to eat. But we do have from Josephus and others that those who were hungry would go ahead and eat, even eat those early figs. But here's the point. The tree was showing signs that it should be bearing fruit. But it wasn't. Do we show signs that we should be bearing fruit? Do we tell people we're a Christian? We're a member of such and such a church? But that's about the extent of any fruit we are showing with our lives? The consequences... Matthew says it's a fig tree withered at once. And no natural blight could have taken effect so instantaneously. But in the story Jesus is telling here, the parable is about figs with two very important things that we need to have in mind. First of all, yes, the need we all have for repentance, but also, secondly, the God's slowness in punishment. I think one highlight of the story is the fact that our opportunity doesn't last forever. But we do have one more chance. You see, the scene Jesus sets is one that would have been familiar to His hearers. A fig tree that's in a vineyard. Why stress the vineyard? Because fig trees grew other places. But in the vineyard, there would be fertile soil. And the verb tense that Jesus used 
indicates that the owner had been looking for fruit for those whole three years. Which seems to indicate a well-established, mature tree. And the failure to bear fruit for three years, that's pretty ominous. In fact, it was unlikely that such a tree would bear fruit since it was already mature. So in our parable that we just read, the owner gives the command, cut it down. Just as in Jesus' encounter with the fig tree, judgment. But in Jesus' case with the fig tree, it was an immediate withering. In this case, the vine dresser comes and intercedes on behalf of the plant. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about if we just prune the tree? How about if we just dig around it and, and do some more fertilizing? Maybe, maybe a little tender loving care. It'll at least give the chance, the tree one more chance to survive. And you know what? We too, we too need to be seeking that one more chance for those who are not responding to God. But the vine dresser recognizes, he recognizes the fact and he knows that if the tree still does not bear fruit, then the end of the matter is at hand. And yet, even so, notice the vine dresser doesn't say, I'll cut it down. He doesn't want to be a part of that destruction. He wants to keep working on it and working on it. But he says, you, you can cut it down. It's your fig tree in your vineyard. Listen to me. The fact that evil is not punished here and now does not mean that God approves of what sinners are doing. Think about it. I've used this illustration before. But if Adam and Eve, when they were first in the garden, and Eve was seduced to take a bite of that fruit, if she had dropped dead just like that, do you think Adam would have wanted a bite? No. The result doesn't come immediately. But it's just as sure. Adam and Eve both had to face death, and so do we. But what it means is that there is no end to God being merciful. That just as we have an opportunity to begin anew this year, as long as we are alive and conscious, there is always provided one more chance. People have asked me, well, what do you think about Beth dead confessions? I said, I'm not the judge. I am not the judge. If they're on their deathbed and they confess and they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and Jesus decides that that's sufficient, praise God for another soul that's saved. But you know what? Since that fig tree supposedly reached maturity, the owner was ready to have it cut down and replaced. And the point of the story is that the absence of judgment can't be construed 
as a sign of our righteousness. Just because we're doing well? And see, that was a hard lesson for those Jews in that day. Because they honestly believed that if you're not being blessed, it's because your relationship with God isn't right. Remember the story of Job? Three friends? Job, you had to do something wrong. You wouldn't be experiencing this if you didn't do something wrong. And taken together, the incidents, that of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate shed, mingled with their sacrifices, and we know that's true historically. He went in and tried to take money out of the treasury of the temple, and in the result of it, people died while they were there trying to worship. And Jesus' response to that and the tree falling on the people in Siloam, and He uses those in the fig tree to confirm to us that just because people pass through life unscathed by suffering, they should not assume that it means that they are in some strange way pleasing God. Tragedy is no sign of sinfulness, and the absence of tragedy is no sure sign of righteousness. I had a very sad story in my early ministry of a young mother who lost a pregnancy and a dear friend of hers, somebody that she felt confidence in, came to her and said, maybe there's something going on in your life and your faith that caused this death to happen. And that young mother who had lost that baby, as far as I know today, has never returned to a church thinking that maybe God had taken her baby as punishment. And here's the problem. We're all alike. Those whose lives are tragic and those whose lives are tranquil, we're all sinners. And we all need to repent. Romans 3.10, it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice also that the parable of the fruitless tree sets a limit on the time available for the required repentance. So the question becomes, the question that we need to ask is the question, how long? How long does a person have? You tell me. That is, if you have an idea when your life might end. I don't. And then comes another real life incident in which we're told that true freedom is found only in Christ. I'm not going to read verses 10 to 17, but it's a story that's found only in Luke. And it belongs to the type of story that Jesus would tell as an answer to an objection. And in this case, the story is about Jesus' teaching in the synagogue, and it's the Sabbath day. And there's a woman who had had a disabling illness, it says, for 18 years. So severe was she that she was bent over and couldn't even straighten herself up. I couldn't help but be reminded as I was reading this over and over the last couple weeks of Deborah's mom. 
Deborah Marsh's mom, how she was so bent over that she could only look straight down at the ground. And yet, such a dear, gentle lady from all the encounters I had with her. And Jesus had compassion when He saw her. And He calls her over. And He says to her, without any response, any initiative on her half part, He says to her, Woman, you're freed from your disability. The objection that's provoked by Jesus' healing of a woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath is pretty severe. And Luke, who you remember is a physician, Luke understands her ailment as due to a demon and her healing as the oppressed being set free. And so we hear the synagogue leader voicing his objection. Well, there's six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. <coughs> his objection is derived from a certain way of reading Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. They thought healing was a labor, a work, and therefore it was prohibited on the Sabbath. But in the story that, that Luke is telling us, Jesus' pronouncement in verses 15 and 16 is really an argument from the minor to the major. The minor comes first. Hey, you hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? That was a customary practice to do. Obviously, it was based on compassion for the animals. And then comes the major. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound her for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Should not a Jewish woman be untied by the same kind of compassion? You see, the synagogue ruler is condemned by his own practice. And the outcome is that Jesus' enemies are put to shame while the people rejoice at the wonderful deeds because the woman has found true freedom in Jesus. Freedom from the demon and freedom from the disabling condition. And so we come to the two small related parables Stories from real life, but they're given a far greater meaning. Jesus' emphasis is on how a little can accomplish much. So let's look at the verses. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Little things. A little seed. The littlest. Does any of you have one of those little necklaces that has the little mustard seed in it? 
Have you, you seen them? Really small seed. You can almost barely see it. And yet it grows into a bush and some in that day were known to be small trees. Don't miss the significance of a very important word and I'm going to go back. He said, therefore. Therefore. Don't miss that word because it shows that these stories are directly related to the preceding event. The opposition of the ruler of the synagogue and his friends didn't mean that the kingdom was going to fail. The warm welcome the multitude gave Jesus and their retort to the ruler and their joy in all his work showed that the kingdom was making its impact. This is a kind of brief yet very terse story that can be easily repeated and used in different ways. In Matthew and Mark, by the way, they emphasize the contrast between the tiny size of the mustard seed and the big plant. But did you notice that Luke doesn't even mention the size of the seed? Here, his point is the end result. The plant grows so big that the birds are able to nest in its branches. And the birds resting in the branches? Go back and read Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament. Birds resting in the branches are a symbol of all the nations of the earth. In other words, the kingdom will be available to all peoples from all nations. There's not going to be an exclusion. Figs, mustard, mustard seeds, and leaven. Now, while the mustard seed had to do with the kingdom extension through the world, the focus of the leaven is on the transforming power. We got to have some of those good yeast rolls again for Christmas. My daughter made them again. Oh man, they are so good. <clears throat> they they're right up there with Aunt Bess, if not better. <laughs> but to watch just a little bit of yeast. And Jesus even emphasizes it in His story. The story says that the woman used three measures of flour or meal. That wouldn't have been a normal quantity. It's a large amount. And so, where the homemade bread is common, people would understand the point more easily sometimes than we do. Only a small amount of leaven is needed to make a large quantity of dough rise. And the point of Jesus' story is that a small amount of leaven makes itself felt throughout the much larger mass. And so it is with the kingdom. Leaven works quietly and unseen. It cannot change the dough while it's outside of the dough. But it's also important to understand that the power for the dough to change has to come from outside. Listen to me. I don't know how to say this other than just be very blunt about it. You can read every self help book on the shelves 
I read books about dieting. Books about exercising. But change has to come from within. I shared with you what caused my change and what caused me to make a change in my eating habits as well as my exercising habits. A year ago, August, sitting across the table from our daughter, I said to my wife, it's not her fault that she's only 20 and I'm 67. She deserves to have a daddy around for a while. And I started watching what I was eating still in New Hampshire, and when I got home, the story began to unfold. Now, I'd had people tell me, you need to be eating less. You need to be exercising. But none of that compulsion from outside did a thing. It had to begin with a desire to change on the inside. And in these two stories, told at this time and in this manner, the stress is not so much on the idea of growth in itself as it is on the certainty that what appears tiny and insignificant will prove to have been the beginning of a mighty kingdom. So let me close with a challenge. I've shared with you many times how in the original copies of the Bible all the way up to the 1300s, there was no division between verses and chapters. That all came much later. And I think any division of the Gospel into, into to sections or chapters, it shows some arbitrariness on the part of the one assigning those divisions. I was going to purchase one time and I didn't and I don't know why I didn't. But there is actually a Bible in print that doesn't have any of the verse numbers or chapter numbers in it. And you read it through. I think that here in this section that issue is really important. While the mention of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in verse 22 might suggest the beginning of a new section, it's still the theme of the need for repentance and for decision. Those form an obvious link to the incidents that we've talked about in the stories of the previous part of the chapter. And the question that is asked of Jesus in verse 23 is one with which each of us struggle. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Let's bring it home. A lot of people right here in Brook who profess to be Christians. And many of them believe they're going to heaven. I read on Facebook this last week somebody from over in Illinois talking about how they were going to be reunited with somebody else in heaven. And as far as I know, and I've known both of the people referred to for a long time, neither of them have anything to do with the church except maybe on Christmas and Easter talking about how they're going to be reunited in heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that the way to heaven is broad? 
When Jesus is asked this question at the close of chapter 13, how does He answer? He answers, enter through the narrow gate. And He says that once the door shuts, there's going to be those on the outside that are saying, wait a minute, Jesus. Why, why didn't we eat with You? Weren't we there in Your presence? And He's going to say, depart from Me. I never knew You. I was listening to a lecture this week and the person said, I'm not going to name his name, but I know a New Testament scholar who knows the New Testament from front to back, reads the Bible frequently. And I asked him one day, but do you know the Savior? He said he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you know, I've always thought that doing all this studying and getting to know this book was what it took. But maybe you're right. And his life started changing. His focus became on others more than on himself and his own accolades. <coughs> Let me ask you, are you ready to enter in through the narrow gate? Because wide and straight is a road of destruction, but difficult and narrow. And few there will be I was going to do something this morning and then to be honest with you with the snow and everything I absolutely forgot I asked my wife yesterday as we were riding home I said do we have a nice clean garbage can that I can put up on the front it's just kind of yeah you could use this one but I was going to put a garbage can up here this morning and I was going to put 2021 on it and I was going to pass out a 3x5 card to each of you and just have you put on there something from 2021 or the past that you need to chuck, get rid of. Let's begin this year putting the past behind, the part of the past that we need to put behind. Oh yeah, I love the image of Leonard Sweet and swinging. He says to swing higher, what do you have to do? Think about it. How do you get higher? You lean back and you kick your feet out, don't you? And he said we need to lean back in the past and remember the good things. But then we need to use that momentum to kick out into the future. Let's begin this new year seeking ways that we can utilize the power of prayer and the power that we find in His book by reaching out to this community and those around us with the message of Jesus Christ. And we, though we are little, 
might find out that we might be able to leaven a whole large mass. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you once again for your message, for your word. So Father, we ask this morning that you will help us as we begin a new year to realize the power that we have in prayer. And yet, to realize that even with the fig tree, there comes a moment at which the tree needs to be cut down if it's not bearing fruit. Help us to bear fruit. Help us to grow into a nurturing, protecting tree for the birds of those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to sing.